Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by the new Discover Amarillo app. This free download is designed to be a resource for new Amarillo residents and really anyone else who wants to keep up with local events, local activities, shopping, businesses, and more. It even maintains a list of family-friendly restaurants with Kids Eat Free offers, which I know I would have loved when I was the parent of small children. Today, they can't get by with that. You can find out more at discoveramarillotx.com or head to the app store of your choice to download Discover Amarillo today. That's the Discover Amarillo app, now available for iPhone and Android. Today's guest is Jill Goodrich. Jill is the executive director at Opportunity School, which provides high-quality, affordable, early childhood education for children of low-income families. Before that, Jill had a long history in communications and advertising, a career that took her from Nebraska into Kansas, and which eventually brought her to Amarillo. So in this episode, we talk about her winding career path, how she went from advertising into the nonprofit world, and the amazing impact of early childhood education and our success as adults. And then we talk about some of the success stories from Opportunity School. So here's Jill Goodrich. Jill Goodrich, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. I'm so glad to be here. This is exciting. I binge listen to your podcast, well, so it's I, really kind of an honor to be here. I'm honored that you are a binge listener to my podcast. <laughs> that that makes me happy, and I I am excited to talk to you. I know we've been trying to do this for several weeks now, um, but I want to start with you the way that I start with all of my guests and just ask you why you're here in the first place. What brought you to Amarillo? So I grew up in Nebraska, and um, I'm a farm girl, uh, mm-hmm. eastern Nebraska. And so in college or in high school, I did a lot of 4-H and FFA okay. and lots of ag things, which is familiar to this area as well. But in the summer, I guess it was 1991, I had an internship, and the company I was working for um, placed me in their Amarillo office. Interesting. And, what kind of company was it? Uh, it's Cargill. Oh, okay. uh, they still have some operations here, but it was actually their grain merchandising office. And um, I was pretty young for Cargill's uh, internship program, um, but they sent me to Amarillo. And um, that summer, um, I met the man who would become my husband, okay. and he's an Amarillo boy. Okay. So we moved back to Amarillo um, after a stint in Nebraska and Kansas City and then moved back to Amarillo about 22 years ago. Okay. And that I mean, that's pretty significant to end up in a place where you just interned, you know, kind of randomly. And that's, uh, I guess it's it's lucky that it, it happened that way. Yeah, it was great. Our first date was to Adilla's game. So oh, okay. um, it, now we have the sod poodle. So sure. we're a big baseball family. So we we love that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was interesting. I didn't know anything about Amarillo at the time. I, in my head, I thought about all of these day trips and things, exciting things I would see in Texas, not really looking at a map and realizing yeah. how far Amarillo is. Like from. you'd run to Houston for the weekend? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, it was that kind of thinking. But when, once I saw the the miles um, on the paper maps we used exactly. to look at, um, you know, you figure out pretty quick that those aren't day trips. Was uh, the, the part of Nebraska that you grew up in, was it pretty rural? I mean, did it feel a lot like this area? Mm. or? 
So there are parts of Nebraska that feel like the high plains that are flat and not a lot of trees. Where I grew up uh, was really um, in the eastern end of the state. So more rain, everything was very lush and green. You know, it was just a beautiful kind of Norman Rockwell, you know, rural setting. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had, we were, we weren't far from our state capital, Lincoln. Okay. Um, and so, um, so there's some similarities, but lots of differences too. So you, uh, you came here as, uh, as an intern for Cargill. What you do now is obviously not anything related to, uh, to that company. So tell me a little bit about how your career progressed from there. Um, so when I graduated, I actually graduated with a degree in agricultural economics and business. Okay. When I graduated, um, I uh, was working for a small trade association in Nebraska. I'd worked there part-time during college. And um, so I continued to work there after graduation. Um, and then um, somehow, some way, a PR agency in Kansas City got my resume. And so they called me. Um, I interviewed with their agribusiness division, um, which then evolved into corporate communications, employee communications for ag companies. And then I started doing work with companies that were completely not related to agriculture. So I have a really interesting background uh, to be in the nonprofit world, especially early childhood education. So, um, but, but my gifts are administration Mm -hmm. and organization. And, and so it lends that the skills lend itself to the work that I do now very well. How long did you do the ag-focused marketing, communications, all that stuff? Not not too long, probably just for the first five years of my career. And then uh, Fleshman Hillard was transitioning to um, do a lot of the corporate and employee communications work in different industries. So one of my clients was Ocean Spray Cranberries, and Mm -hmm. another one was... um, a company of Johnson and Johnson that did um, laparoscopic surgeries and they sold surgical equipment. So, um, but, but kind of the employee communications, the corporate communications side um, is common among all of those things. And so, um, so we worked with a variety of clients and I had a great team there and um, I was with Fleshman Hillard for nine or 10 years. Um, And then we moved to Amarillo and I telecommuted, for a while in, in the midst, we got married. and, right. and uh, So you continued to work for them. Even yeah, you I were did. It here. was when telecommuting and working from home was like a new thing, wasn't It's still a new thing for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. So you were quite the pioneer. But it was really new there then. It was really new then. I mean, it was the whole debate of if you were working from your home, did the company buy your printer or did you have to buy a mm-hmm. printer? Or, you know, those kinds of things. Email was still not... Hadn't been around for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, so there was just a lot of things um, back in the uh, mid to late 90s that um, were kind of emerging. And so uh, we moved to Amarillo. We loved our time in Kansas City um, at Fleshman Hillard and and uh, loved our time there. Um, but we were thinking about starting a family and kind of putting down roots somewhere. Mm-hmm. And um we both felt like I could bring my job to Amarillo, and Russ had found work here okay. um, with a small family-based based business here, and so um, we made the move. Did was there a reason that Amarillo seemed like a good place to do that? I mean, obviously, if he had a job here like that, that helps yeah. you decide. But was there something about and you know your experience here that you thought, okay, this is a good place to kind of plant ourselves? I think the draw for us, we both 
come from big families. So I'm one of five. He's one of five. Um, family was a huge draw. And I think, again, in our um, naivete as a young married couple, we thought, mm-hmm. we'll just live in Oklahoma City. It's halfway between both of our families. And we couldn't find work there. Hmm. Um, and so uh, it just, it's where God led us. But but really, it was about being close to family and just knowing that um, if we were in between, then we would always be traveling for the holidays. This way, um, we we can balance that a little okay. bit better for us. How long did you do the remote work for that I company? I did that for, moved here in 99 Three or four years. Okay. So I was always traveling, um, and I would see uh, Kathy Cornett, who owned McCormick Company at the time, and she and I would pass each other, and we got to know each other actually in the airport. Okay. And um, she would say, Jill, if you came to work for me, you wouldn't have to travel so much. And so um, I finally took her up on her offer. Okay. And And McCormick was doing a lot of agriculture. Yes. So I did ag work. I did food marketing work. Mm -hmm. I did, you know, I, I... Lots of just variety of work, which is really interesting to me. And um, but at the core, it's about serving people, mm-hmm. and it's about taking care of clients, and it's about you know doing what you say you're going to do. And um, I was good at that, and and loved doing that. And so um, the agency business, although it's hard, um, was always a really good fit for me. All right, and then that that agency side of things has changed a lot since then. I, really I wonder how long has. your um, you know your your tenure with McCormick lasted. So I was there. I, I was assigned to a project with the Emerald Area Foundation. And, and at that time, the Emerald Area Foundation was doing the No Limits, No Excuses okay. work. The No Excuses University was um, all about how do we break down barriers for families living in poverty and how do we um, you know keep those people in living wage jobs and working here um, in Amarillo. And I always say I drank the Kool-Aid. I mean, mm. I believed in that um, and believed that that work was important for a community. Um, I was still traveling a lot, and I just felt like even though we went to church here and we had a home here, I wasn't here interacting with the people of Amarillo a whole lot because many of my clients were out of town. But that work with the Emerald Area Foundation at the time really kind of um, maybe kind of sit up and, and think about where my career was going. We had very small children at the time. I was still, uh, you know, in the airport a lot. And um, uh, it just seemed to be a good fit. I had served on the board of Opportunity School for about six years before they were looking for a new executive director. And I actually was invited to serve on the steering committee to hire the next person. Right. And I told the board president at the time, I can't. I'm never in town. <laughs> yeah. And then some some wonderful friends that were really close to me said, "Jill, you should you should think about this. Like you have all those skills that you would need in this role and I hadn't really thought about that. It hadn't even crossed my mind. Um but it turned out that's uh, where I was called and I do feel called to that work and um I've been there 10 years now and okay. it's been a great ride. For people that don't know Opportunity School, um, which is is an organization, a nonprofit that has a lot of name recognition. I think I encounter it all the time, but there may be people who just 
have heard of it, but don't know what yeah. it is or what it does. Yeah. So, so tell people about it. So, um, so to understand Opportunity School, you have to understand its foundation. Um, it was started out of a Sunday school class at First Presbyterian Church by a group of young parents at the time in the late 1960s who okay. said, we want to do something as we grow in our faith. We want to serve our community and we want to do things in our community um, that show we love people. And um, they had read a book called Journey Inward, Journey Outward. And it was all of these case studies about a church who had done that, I think, in the Washington, D.C. area. Okay. And um, they, they, you know, Elaine Edwards uh, at the time, she sent everybody out to do research about what were needs in our community. And the idea came back to start a preschool for low-income children. And um, that's how it started. And so we have I've always had a two-generational approach, which is really about what we do in the classroom to, to help provide that really strong foundation for young children. But it's also how we walk alongside families and help them um, to realize what their goals are and, and to um, really help them know how much the family is an extension of what, uh, how children learn and grow and develop. So I know that, that there are obviously anyone who's had a child knows the value of preschool, you know, for them. And people have probably driven past any number of preschools, which may be public, maybe private, maybe church-based, maybe, yeah. you know, a for-profit. Yeah. There's a lot of those in Amarillo. Um, tell me what makes Opportunity School different from those. I think a couple of things. One is our emphasis is really on doing the very best for the children in our community who need it the most. Okay. Um, we know that um, there's lots of options for families. Um, you know, for one example, 70% of our families are single parent ha households. All right. So really working with families who um, really need a partner to, to come alongside them. Um, it's not just about, you know, what goes on there during the day. It's really about how we, um, we help the whole family. And so I think that was appealing to me. I think that um, I was, had always been a working parent Um I did have a husband who was extremely helpful, um, but not all families are structured that way. Mm -hmm. And and I knew that that was so necessary um, just for our family. And we had privilege and we could afford um, childcare and babysitters and all those kinds of things. I just really felt drawn to the mission of the school and knew how important that was in my life and knew that we could really provide a wonderful service to other families. Was the adjustment from being in the marketing advertising world um, to being in the nonprofit world, and not just the nonprofit world, but nonprofit education of preschoolers, yeah. um, was was that a hard career transition to make? I mean, obviously, you had the gifts that could apply to both of those places, but the focus and the mindset is really different. I made so many mistakes. Did you? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I made so many mistakes. And even in the midst of times that were really hard, um, because I was learning a lot and, you know, I had all this business background and you're right, the approach is very different. The pace is different. The way that decisions are made are, is different. Mm -hmm. And so there were a lot of things that I learned, um, I think, by trial and error. And I think for me, um, I, I could have easily given up. Yeah, <laughs> I could have easily said, oh, man, I'm way better 
in the business world and I'm going to go back to where to what's familiar. Um, but I really felt like God was saying, you need to stick in this and you need to stay and you need to do what I'm asking you to do. And, and that was not, you know, my my first choice many days. Um, but I've loved, I have loved it. It's been an incredible blessing through that. But yes, it was a it was a hard transition. I think what helped me is I was the mom of four kids. Right. I was the so working mom of four kids. Yeah. Uh, and I was willing to learn. I was willing to be mentored by other people. I was willing to seek out the advice of others and some incredible other, you know, executive directors that are around town and um and they were willing to share their wisdom with me and um, you know, and, and, and I want to do the same for others. Um, it's, uh, it is not for the faint of heart, but it's definitely, um, I feel like where I'm supposed to be and, and, and where I'm meant to be. And it was a new career path for you, a new challenge, but not a new organization. And so you're stepping into this organization that had history. Yes. It had, you know, probably alumni who are still involved. It had, You know all of this this legacy that that you are kind of taking the mantle yeah. of, and there are there are challenges to that too, and and maybe a lot of pressure. I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that um, you know just staying in those relationships and working through those things, even when it's hard to do, um, I think is what kind of got me over the hump, um, and then you know doing the work. You know, doing doing the work to making sure our organization was um, well run. Mm-hmm. You know, financially, um, administratively. Um, you know, our facilities. You know, all the things that that you have to say grace over um, as an executive director. Um, I was, you know, I used to have a, a manager who would say, "It's like." It's like building the bike while you're riding it. Okay. <laughs> and 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 that analogy really is true. It's like it's not you don't have all the pieces yet, but you still have to keep moving forward. And I think that was um you know, that was something that um you know, by the grace of God, I I stuck to it. And um and yeah, and I made lots of mistakes and I apologized a lot and I I stuck my foot in my mouth a lot and and I learned. And I and I uh, hopefully hopefully have gotten better over time. I think there there have been a lot of discussions just in the larger culture recently about the value of early childhood education, um about the impact on not just kids but on their parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we've seen, I think, a lot of that during COVID as suddenly something that parents depend on so they can go work, you know, was shut down for a time or was closed for a time or didn't have the personnel to staff it for a time. And it's such a complicated world. Yeah. I wonder what, you know, the, the past year or so has been like as you've had to navigate all that stuff, mm-hmm. not just the challenges of the job itself, but the, cho- the job during a pandemic. I think the big thing that has stuck with me during all of this, uh, first and foremost, as a parent, um, you know, my husband and I would say all the time, man, we're really glad we all like each other because we we really grew as a family during that time because we had a good foundation. Um, I've been at Opportunity School for 10 years and and I've been the best parent I've been in the last 10 years. Okay. Because I've learned so much about 
the science of how children's brains develop and their emotions and how you guide that as an adult and, you know, powerful words you can speak into your kids and things that derail them. And, and so, you know, again, learning that and experience it, seeing other practitioners, um, teachers who had been at opportunity school for years and years and years, seeing them in the classrooms and watching that happen um, as they interacted with children. Um, I think um, that was really cool. And I think that during COVID, even though there are, um, you know, there were times when we were physically apart, mm-hmm. um, you know, it always comes back to that relationship and investing in that relationship, even with little children. Right. And so if we can do that well with kids, we should be able to, you know, we, we should be even better at it with adults. And, um, and just it's, it's, it's a skill that we practice over and over and over again. So even during COVID, the way that I saw people show up for others and reach out and continue to maintain those connections, um, I think was, was instructive, um, on so many levels, um, for our family, uh, for opportunity school as an organization for our staff, um, and, and it's been, and, and, and yet there's been hard times and, and we're facing some staffing issues right now mm-hmm. as we've, you know, attempted to grow, um, during this time, um, we, uh, we're facing some of those challenges now, but, um, again, when you have a strong foundation, uh, whether it's in your kids or in your family or, um, in your, um, organization, um, it's a good place to build on. And I would think staffing would be just super challenging for what you do because, you know, anyone who's who's been a parent knows what kind of patience is necessary, what kind of creativity is necessary, the kindness and compassion that's necessary to be a, you know, someone teaching very small children. Yeah. And a lot of us parents, like, <laughs> we don't have that or don't have it naturally. And so you're looking for someone who's got all of that, you know, that soft skill set, but like also the knowledge to be yeah, a good teacher. And yeah. and those are things that are not always easy to find. Yes. Yes. And, and they're not, and they're, and it's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, you mentioned the, the kind of the childcare realm, you know, you know, about 12 or 15 years ago, you know, there was like 156 childcare programs in Amarillo. We're down to a 66. Wow. Okay. Um, so we've lost a lot of our early childhood um, offering, um, you know, programs have gotten bigger, you know, things have changed. Um, but but trying to um, find people that have, you know, the energy and the compassion and all those things that you you mentioned to uh, spend, you know, eight hours a day mm-hmm. um, with this group of children, um, it takes a special person. And we've had a lot of those over the years. And, and I believe we're going to, we're going to keep finding those people and, and, uh, hopefully, um, you know, we'll see them, um, on our 20 year wall, um, you know, down the road. Okay. So one of the things I, I think is really unique about opportunity school is how short the window is in the relationships that you build. You know, you have a lot of nonprofits, the food bank, you know, might provide food for a family for 15 or 20 years. Yeah. You know, other ones are, you know, six to eight years while kids are in elementary school or something like that. You've got them for maybe two years, maybe three years. I yeah, mean, it's- it depends. We, you know, because we're a zero to five program, mm-hmm. so so we have families that have been with us since their children were infants, 
and we're watching them go to kindergarten. So they've been with us. Maybe they have siblings. So, you know, I can think of a few parents that um, as they've had children, um, they keep bringing them to opportunity school. Right. So and, sometimes and it's so longer than do. five years. We do. We do. We have families that have been with us for many years. Um, we have the children and grandchildren of people now who had attended opportunity wow. school when they were a child, and they remember wonderful, loving experiences as a child. And so they want their child or their grandchild to have that same experience. And, um, and, and that's what we want um, to do for all families is that it be um, something that they remember and creates that foundation for learning mm-hmm. that is interesting and exciting and a warm, familiar place instead of a place that's, you know, scary or, you know, frustrating. Um, and so we do a lot of things to make sure those children are, are well equipped when they, they enter public school. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that, because I, I think a lot of people might have the perception that, you know, when you think of a preschool, it's just like you want someone to watch your kids and you want them to be in obviously in a nice place, a safe place, a place where they feel good. But like there's, there's an educational component. There's a cognitive development component that you are thinking of. I mean, there's a social emotional. So tell me, tell me about the things that go beyond. I want a warm body, keeping my kid out of trouble while I'm at work. Yeah. So and I think that for any parent, you know, they want the very best mm-hmm. that they can provide for their child. Um, but sometimes we don't know what that very best is. Um, you know, again, as someone with a background in economics, like I got so excited about the business case around early childhood development because 80% of a child's brain is wired by the time you're three. A lot of times families don't even think about bringing their child to preschool, if they can stay at home or they have other care options, they don't think about bringing their child to an early childhood program until they're three or four, right before they go to public school. And what we've seen, and I think what Betsy Singleton, who was the first teacher at Opportunity School, saw is that if we start that foundation earlier we get more chances, we get more opportunities to really help that brain wire in the best way possible. Um, Because, you know, when they say the brain is like a sponge, it literally is because there's all these neurons that are that are connecting so quickly during those first five years that um, our brains can rewire themselves, but it takes longer. So things like social emotional control, all the soft skills that um, employers are looking for about being a team player and Mm -hmm. good communication and good customer service and and all those things, you know, those kind of peak, the wiring for that happens when a child's about a year old. Wow. Literacy and the foundation for language um, happens very early. The way that we view the world, whether it's a um, good and safe and happy place or if it's a scary. um, So we we do a lot of trauma training with our staff um, because a lot of children's experiences um, can be a little darker. And so that that that's going to come out in a big emotion in the classroom uh, or at home or in the grocery store aisle Mm -hmm. or somewhere. And how do we help kids learn how to handle those big emotions 
because they're going to happen. We can't just push them down. Um, but but how do we do that? And how do we make choices about how we behave in ways that are safe for myself and safe for others? And so that's kind of the social emotional. Um, we use a, an approach called conscious discipline, um, which is really um, in tune and developed based on all of that brain research okay. that we now have that we didn't have 25 or 30 years ago. You know, the last, you know, maybe 20 years ago, um, you know, there's a lot of, of more information that we have. And so how do we incorporate that in, in what we do? Is there an element of it that is unique because most of the kids at Opportunity School um, maybe are, are living in poverty or at least lower income levels? And I know that those kinds of households, maybe it's a single mom, like they tend to be a little bit more stressful mm-hmm. just because of the realities of, of that mm-hmm. kind of situation. Are, are you... Is there anything that you do specifically knowing that, you know, the, the kids in our care might have a little bit greater challenges environmentally or, you know, in terms of just attention and all those things. Yeah. So I think part of that is the training. Part of that is just recognizing that every family is different Mm -hmm. and that my family experience is going to be different than another's family's family's experience. Um, I think one of the things that things that makes us unique is less about poverty, although that's our mission is to serve primarily low income families. But it's also about the relationships that we want to build. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had several of our single moms who have said, you know what, I didn't have that other parent, but Opportunity School was that, that you know, second parent for me because, you know, y'all came alongside me. And whether it was a single dad, we had this dad one time, we found out later that he was um, going to a custody hearing because he found out that the child that he was raising wasn't his biological child and he was going to have to go to court and, but he'd raised this child for three years and he held up, he brought in two outfits he'd brought at Goodwill and he held those up to our director and said, Hey, listen, I've got to go to court. I've got to, you know, I've got to fight for my son. Um, And, you know, uh, my director came to me and she's like, Jill, I don't like, He's going there by himself. He doesn't have an attorney. He doesn't have. And so, so, you know, we were able to get him connected with a family attorney um, and got him some pro bono help. He didn't have to go to that hearing by himself, um, you know, and, and that case went on and on. But it just kind of shows you the level of connection between the staff and the teachers when you have parents who are involving you in that level of detail of mm-hmm. their lives. What outfit should I wear to go to court? Wow. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, and, and, you know, this guy was just, you know, blown away that we weren't just going to give him advice about the outfit, but we were going to try to figure out how to come alongside him in that experience and, and to help that, you know, because we knew, you know, now this child had been in this stable environment for several years. And, you know, we know that's what's best for kids. So stable family, stable home, that's better for kids. And so how do we help facilitate that in any way we can? I wonder what, you know, working in this field, you know, I I know that you've, you've worked with the children and with their families. Uh, You've also worked as a fundraiser, you know, for a nonprofit. What 
all those different relationships have, have sort of taught you about Amarillo as a place to, oh to be the executive director of a nonprofit. Yeah. Hmm. I think what I love about Amarillo and Amarillo people is that, um, and I think about board, I think about our board volunteers, I think about, you know, just the other day I was talking to someone who volunteers at LIPS, mm-hmm. and which is our fundraiser, and he had an idea of how I could get my fence built at our new campus. And because fencing materials are outlandishly expensive mm-hmm. right now, and so how, how can we get this done? And like, so I think what I love about Amarillo is that we're problem solvers, right? And I've, I'm, you know, I've lived here for 20 years. Emerald is my home. You know, I'm, I am so invested in this community. But, you know, no matter where you turn, there are people that are willing to help solve problems in our community. Um, you know, whether it's a fence or a need that this family has or um, these children need coats or these children need sh- I mean, right? I mean, I think that our community is just so generous in jumping in and doing whatever it takes to solve a problem. And um and I love that. I love that 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 the focus is on the help and not on the problem itself. Like how do we just get this barrier out of its way and so, you know, pe- people can be successful. And I love that about about Amarillo. Okay, to to close out this section, I I wanted to know. I know that there are several alumni of Opportunity School who are living in Amarillo, working in Amarillo, maybe have prominent jobs, maybe have kids of their own who've gone through the program. I wonder if there's anybody that you can kind of point to as a success story, as someone who, you know, got their start in that program and now has, you know, has found the fulfillment of that, I guess. Yeah, I can think of um, several, but one that comes to mind is Adrian Meander. Uh, He works at Amarillo National Bank. Um, you know, so, so we have alums that are bankers and lawyers and doctors and teachers and moms and dads and, um, you know, recent, you know, graduates from WT, but, um, Adrian, uh, served on the board, his, uh, nephew Montrell, um, he actually, we interviewed him for, uh, lips last, last year. Okay. But, uh, you know, he's an NFL football player. And um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of people in our community that are making just huge contributions in the work that they do and in the way that they share their time with other organizations um, that I think make Amarillo better. And then I think that's part of Opportunity School's vision is that we want to see um, you know, these young children be contributing members of their communities and their families and um, in the places where they work. And, um, you know, it's, it's yeah, is it, do we want to be successful in, in school? Yeah, grades are great and, you know, all that's good. But, but we really want to see these young people be successful in life. And at Opportunity School, we just think that that starts really, really early. And, and that's where our focus is. Instead of another sponsor segment here, I want to make sure you know about the Panhandle Gives. This annual campaign, which lasts from November 22nd through November 30th, is hosted by the Amarillo Area Foundation. 
It gives participating nonprofit organizations the opportunity to have financial gifts amplified during this campaign, as long as they raise at least $250 during the Panhandle Gives. Last year, the Panhandle Gives raised $3.5 million for local charities and hopes to do even more in 2021. So to learn more and to make your donations to participating nonprofits, go visit thepanhandlegives.org. That's thepanhandlegives.org. Okay, I'm back with Jill Goodrich of Opportunity School. Jill, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes an iron blade that was usually attached to an eight-foot lance that was used by Plains Indians to hunt bison. They preferred using an eight-foot lance to a rifle uh, to get their buffalo, which I think is pretty fantastic. That's Uh, awesome. Everybody else was, you know, shooting them from 200 yards away, and and they're just riding right up and taking them down that way, so that's impressive. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, we talked about this a little bit, but what's one thing the pandemic and the past 18 months or so have revealed to you about local people? Um, that we are a community of problem solvers. We don't just sit around and talk about it. Uh, people get stuff done. And um, that, I think, is wonderful for our community and for our next generation to see. And it has exposed a lot of problems that we maybe didn't know needed to be solved you yeah. know, a year ago. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you're looking at workplace issues and safety issues and spacing issues and restaurants and all those kinds of things that... Nobody anticipated, mm-hmm. uh, but business owners have had to, you know, pivot and do new things. Nonprofits have had to do brand new things mm-hmm. to keep people safe, and I, I've just been impressed by the creativity. I think of a lot of places. Yeah, I think that that's like I said. I mean, um, you know, around opportunity school, I always say, you know, okay, let's sit down, let's talk about it. It's just a problem to be solved, and and I think that that um, that takes fear you know, out of it, mm-hmm. that takes a lot of the uncertainty. Okay, let's sit down and problem solve this deal. And, and I think that, um, that, that puts people that gives people a sense of, um, this isn't happening to me. This is something that we can figure out together. And I think that's a, a lesson that I hope that we never lose and we never stop doing that. Okay. What does this area have too much of? Dust. All right. <laughs> um, Dust, which we typically don't think of too much until it's like super, super windy. Oh my gosh. Or. And it just re- makes me realize how bad my windows are. Um, yeah. I'm a clean freak. And so I, I cleaning is very therapeutic to me, um, for me. And so um, it's a good stress reliever. Just, you know, it's instant gratification. Mm-hmm. You know, the, this was dusty. You can see where you've been. And now and it's not dusty anymore. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think. There's no one who would argue against yes, there yeah. being too much dust yeah. inside and outside the homes. For sure. What does this area not have enough of? Uh, lush green grass and rolling hills. Right. I, you know, my time in Nebraska growing up there, um, when we drive uh, back to Nebraska and we start getting into, you know, the the northern part of Kansas and the east to the southern part of Nebraska and you have those, you know, just beautiful green rolling hills that is uh, salve to my soul. Okay. So uh, I love that. Um, but I love the beauty here, too. Um, don't get me wrong, but um, I do miss that. I was going to say, when you find yourself immersed in that sort of place, does it feel like your home or does it 
feel now like you are vacationing to some place that's pretty? You know, I think that having been born in that, I, it does feel home. It, it's very, it's a very familiar feeling. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I certainly can appreciate and do appreciate the um, the beauty of our landscape of the high plains and. Um, you know, when we go to, um, you know, Palador Canyon or over to New Mexico or, you know, it just, um, you know, God's given us beauty in all different forms. And so, um, you know, I love that about Amarillo too. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? So if they uh, are from Nebraska, um, I tell them it's a little bit like Lincoln, only it's not a state capital and there's not a Big Ten football team here. Okay. Um, For others who just aren't familiar, like I was when I first came to Amarillo, um, I say um, it's a really great place that's uh, five to six hours from a bunch of other great places. (laughs) That's a really good way to put it. You know, like, you know, Bricktown, we love Oklahoma City. We love, you know, our daughter lives in Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, we have family there. We love going over to Albuquerque and Santa Fe. And, um, you know, so there's Colorado Springs. I mean, there's there's lots of great places around us, um, but it's a great place that's uh, within reach of those others. Okay, that's a really good point. Um, other than your own, what's your favorite local nonprofit? Yeah, I have to say the Downtown Women's Center. Okay. I think that Diane Gilmore is fabulous, and she is one of the most um, just professional, thoughtful, prayerful. Um, you know, I really observe her in her element when I have the opportunity to be around her. And, um, you know, she's just a really good model as, a, as another great um, ED okay. um, who's been doing this for a long time. and. It does a great job. We also partner with the Downtown Women's Center. And so while they're serving moms, we're serving those children a lot of times. And so um, it's a great partnership as well. I know there there are so many really strong nonprofits in this area, nonprofits that have been around for a long time. It's really time. hard to choose. I like know. I feel bad calling out one and not several. So. Absolutely. I, I wonder <laughs> if there's a community of executive directors of nonprofits like you and you rely on each other and you're like, how did you address this problem? And there is, we meet every, uh, first Wednesday of every month. Um, we have a meeting this week in okay. fact, and, um, yeah, it is a really great network of, of just time that we, um, learn from each other, but we also have some professional development of things okay. that executive directors are thinking about or struggle with, or um, and it's and it's great to build those relationships because then you know you might know someone who has just done strategic planning, and so you need to get some ideas of how to do that for your organization, and so you can go talk to this person, or you know this person is struggling with you know I mean who's really good with you know employee stuff mm-hmm. or personnel stuff. And so, you know, I, there is a great community here of, of uh, EDs and um, just nonprofit leaders um, that collaborate, who share ideas, who problem solve together. Yeah, that's good to know, because I, I would think it's pretty easy to get siloed, you know, in, in the needs of your organization and having fresh yes. voices from completely different organizations to say, this is how we... Yes, it's one of the this. meetings... Um, uh, it's one of the meetings I hate to miss. Okay, and and it, it's a good one, and I always get something from it. What is your favorite local restaurant? Oh, that's well. I, can I say two? Okay, I'll take okay, two. Okay, so um, I really love Saigon. 
All right. Um, and uh, I love I love their um, the Vietnamese food there. Um, Boonth at noon is I order it every time because I love it so much. And then uh, Texas Chicken Bowl out on the boulevard yeah. um, is really got great Thai food and the people there are great. And um, so, yeah, those are we, we like we like all kinds of, of food, but um, most of our family um, uh, will we usually pick uh, Thai. OK, and I've always loved just the name of Texas Chicken Bowl as a Thai food, <laughs> Thai food restaurant that if you're somebody were to come from out of town, you'd say, yeah, let's go to this great Thai food place. It's called Texas Chicken Bowl. Yes. Um, doesn't always sound like. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's been around for so long. Oh, you know? I know. I know. I, 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 if I'm on that side of town often, um, I mean, right now they're, they are doing a bang up drive through business, mm-hmm. but, um, but you know, I'll, I'll just call and they, they know my name. They know, they recognize me, um, you know, when I pull through the drive through and get Mandarin beef or, um, the stir fry or, you know, whatever it's, it's just really solid. What is your favorite local coffee shop? My kitchen. Um, really, <laughs> I kind of like my coffee, but, um, but if I'm going to meet someone, um, I love the, the vibe at, uh, palace okay. and i have a lot of meetings there and meet people there okay and when was the last time you visited cadillac ranch oh i had to really think about that russ and i couldn't remember but it's been several years but it was when the kids were littler and we got let them spray paint stuff Just that sort of and an amarillo rite of passage exactly to... exactly when i lived here in amarillo that summer during my internship mm-hmm. um russ took me out there um and that's one of the first photographs we have of us together wow okay. was at cadillac ranch so all right well that's a that's a, a good photo to have yeah it's great okay so that concludes the eight straight questions jill i like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing that you would want listeners to know about or to experience? So, you know, I think one of the the things that COVID, you know, customer service has suffered a little bit with COVID mm-hmm. because, you know, people are short-staffed and they're struggling with getting good um, uh, staff. But I have to do a shout out to um, Bomb City Movers. Um, We've had a couple of opportunities at Opportunity School and at First Presbyterian Church um, where we've needed movers. And um, if you want something done right and well and with a smile on their faces and um, they are they, they have exceeded our expectations every single time. And these are big moves. Yeah. Uh, this is like tons of stuff, classrooms full of things. And um, to a person, his team is just great. They're just great people. They come in, they do their job well, they work hard. Um, they just get it done. And so if you need movers, um, I mean, that's who I would call in a heartbeat. That's a good one to know because I know there are a lot of people who are moving these days to Amarillo, around in Amarillo, yeah, from one house to DJ, another house. Call so. DJ, tell him Jill sent you. <laughs> okay, okay, you've heard it. All right, Jill Goodrich, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. It's awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for what you do. Well, thank you. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Jill for the interview. You can learn more about Opportunity School at opportunityschool.com. Thanks to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to my sponsors, the Discover Amarillo app, and especially Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring eight straight every week. Don't forget about the Panhandle Gives, which starts this week through the 30th of November. 
This podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you. So thank you for listening. Thank you for reviewing it. Thank you for telling your friends about it. I really do appreciate it. Uh, and also, of course, the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash Amarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Barbara and Jim Witten, Katie Linger, Jess Heredia, Chris Selda, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Wilson Lemieux, and Patrick Burns. This has been episode 224, and it's Thanksgiving week, so happy Thanksgiving. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>